Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 151, and my guest today is a killer songwriter, singer, and guitar player now living in Eastern Canada, maybe Halifax, I can't remember exactly where, Afi Gervainen, better known as Bahamas. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I sure appreciate you joining me this week. I just got back from Vancouver where I do this annual show and had such a blast playing there once again. I run a house band that's pretty epic. Two drummers, two keyboard players, me and another guitar player, a horn section, and I put together all this music and we back up 10 artists, mostly singers, doing songs from an album that I choose. And this year it was Highway 61 Revisited. It was a riot. That's a lot of words on that album, a lot of lyrics, but everyone rose to the occasion and we made a huge racket and it was a lot of fun. So now I'm back to work here, mixing a bunch of albums that I started a while back. So jumping right back into it. I should mention that we've just announced the Henhouse Hang dates for 2024. You've heard me talking about that before, um, but the 2024 dates are out now, and uh, so it's registration if you're interested in going. We've also added another version of the Hang that's just focused on mixing. So that's just with me instead of another engineer and a bunch of musicians. It's not going to be that. It's just going to be me talking about mixing and showing you the techniques that I use and how to go about it. So if you want to come and hang and learn about that, that's what we'll be doing. And so the mixing hang is going to be March 23rd and 24th of 2024. And the main henhouse hang, the one where you come for three days and take in a complete session from the ground up with a live band, will be in September again. And the dates are September 23rd to 25th. So you can get all the info and you can now sign up for a spot at stevedawson.ca. There's some links on the front page there. There's only eight spots for each event. So um, get on it if you're interested and hope to see you there. Also, just a reminder that we'll be giving away a bunch of cool prizes from our sponsors at the end of the season, which is coming up in a couple months, I guess. And we're going to have some killer union tube and transistor pedals up for grabs, which are awesome. 
uh, and some other stuff from our other sponsors. You just have to be a Patreon subscriber to be entered, and the winner will be picked from there. And I'd just like to shout out to a couple of new Patreon members this week who were generous enough to help support the show. So many thanks to Dean Worley and Jacob Sanders. You guys are cool. Thank you. All right, on to this week's show. So Afi Gervainen is on today, and he's best known as Bahamas. He's made six records now under that name, with the newest one called Bootcut, just released a few weeks ago. And it's a killer record, and I uh, guess will be sort of pinned as his country record, I say with floating quotation marks in the air. Although I don't think it's that, really, but... Um, I think that's what people will call it. He did make it in Nashville, and he used a bunch of seasoned session players for the recordings, including uh, Vince Gill and Russ Paul on Steel, who's been on the show. So it does have that flavor. But Afy's no dummy, and he had the vision to incorporate elements of country music into what he does without changing his own approach or his own sound that much. And it works really, really well. I should also point out that Dave Rowe plays bass on this record, and he passed away just a couple weeks ago after we had this conversation. So that's why we don't mention it. But we do talk about him, and he was a real legend around here. He played with Johnny Cash for years and then was a mainstay around town in studios. And I used to see him playing a lot with like Jim Oblon and Kenny Vaughn and people like that. Anyway, RIP to Dave Rowe, the great bassist. Afy's always made really interesting choices when he's making records, almost as if he's trying to challenge himself. We talk a bit about his Earth Tones album that was really wicked too and featured Pino Palladino on bass and James Gadson on drums, which is an insane lineup and such a cool record. Earth Tones, check that one out. If you don't know James Gadson's playing, then you, you need to go right now onto YouTube and search Gadson Bill Withers. And what comes up almost near the top, I think, is um, a live performance of them doing Use Me, you know that song, Use Me, and it's on the gray, the old gray whistle test, and it's from 1972. So go check that out right now. It's really slow and greasy, and it's like an encyclopedia on how to play drums and guitar. Bill Withers' guitar playing is so cool, and it's just like straight eighth notes, but it's like so groovy and wicked, so much soul. Anyway. Uh, back on track here. Afy um, also spent some time as a side guy and did a bunch of sessions around his old hometown of Toronto through the early 2000s before landing a touring gig with Feist. And uh, he played with her for quite a while, maybe a couple of years, I'm not totally sure, but quite a while. And then after that, he set out on his own and that's where the Bahamas adventure begins. And it started with Pink Strat, his 2009 record, and goes right through the recent one, Boot Cut. So go listen to all his records and enjoy them. They're really happening. Great writing, great singing, great guitar playing, great tones. Meanwhile, you can keep up to date with uh, Afy's touring at bahamasmusic.net. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Afy Gervainen, a.k.a. Bahamas. You've been down there for a long time though, right? I have lived here for 10 years. Yeah. Love it? I do love it. Yeah. yeah. We, the center of the universe. Yeah, man. <laughs> totally. You probably spent a bit of time over here, right? Uh, a little bit. Uh, some friends of mine's like yeah. some musicians that uh, operate on the higher plane there. You know, they took me to some restaurants over there, drank natural wine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's and crust pizza you roll over here yeah it was pretty fancy stuff <laughs> yeah. for sure uh cool well uh thanks for doing this man i appreciate it yeah my pleasure so i don't know if you remember but i i think i've met you a couple times mm -hmm. but uh the one time for sure the first time was well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was up in whitehorse i remember um, at 
I think it was the Frostbite Festival. I think that's what it was called. Yeah, and you were working with that amazing vocal group. Oh, that's yeah. I forgot about that. I didn't remember why I was there. That was the Sojourners. Yeah, yeah, they were fantastic. And I don't know if you were even Bahamas then. Were you? Um, yeah, I mean, it was. It was basically I just played with a drummer, Jason, at that time, and uh, the two of us played okay. as a duo. You know, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's I did that for many years. You know. Um, just as a, the duo was like the touring machine for, for, for that period. I mean, I didn't, uh, for the first little bit, I didn't have any of those nice Canadian subsidies. And so that's what I could afford. (laughs) And I, I liked the sound of it too. It was kind of like the punk rock part of you was kind of into that and just, and, and it just sort of meant that the drums could occupy a very different space and it was less groove oriented and more, um, just raw energy. And, uh, Anyway, I liked, I liked playing that way a lot. And, um, and then when I was able to afford it, I hired two singers. So then we hired a drums, guitar and two singers and that toured like that for quite a while. Um, and you know, and then at some point I succumbed to the lure of the bass player and, and, uh, well, bass is a, bass is a big part of your records. Like I'm, I'm kind of surprised you held out as long as you did. It's true. It's true. The guy that plays in my touring band actually played on my first two albums, Darcy Ace is a phenomenal player. He's played with lots of different people. And, uh, um, and uh, yeah, and I've had the fortune to play with lots of great players and I love playing bass. I have a bass. I mean, nobody ever calls me to play bass on their records, but I love, uh, I love playing bass. I mean, I would love to some, someday just get the phone call to be like, we need your help. There's nobody, there's nobody else that can do it. And you're the guy, but I'm, I play more like Ron Wooders. I just play guitar on the bass and there's something so satisfying okay. about that. You know, do you ever play bass on your records? Yeah. A fair bit. A fair you bit. Do? Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I, I do like on all the records, actually, there's always like one or two songs where I, oh, really? I end up just like redoing the bass or, or, um, yeah, I'm not sure for whatever reason. I, I that that's pretty typical. That tends to happen a fair bit. Do you ever write with the bass, or are you are you always like on the guitar when you? Uh, no, I don't really write with the bass. I do bass is like something where like I love playing along with records. Um, yeah, and not even necessarily learning the bass line from the song, but I just love for whatever reason that instrument is something that I love. Just sort of like you know, grooving and jamming along at home and stuff with that on that instrument. But um, I very rarely do I do that on guitar, actually. But uh, yeah, anyway, it's uh, it's a fun instrument. But when you were kicking around in, in the in the Toronto scene, like in the early 2000s, and you were doing a, a lot of guitar playing for people, did you ever get any uh, bass gigs at that point? Um, I, I mean, after I had played with Feist, the band, that version of the band kind of ended she came off the road and essentially that you know we were all unemployed and um and then she phoned me for one like she was doing one gig at the olympics uh in in whistler and oh, yeah. she wanted to put together a different totally different version of the band she had a whole choir like singers and uh keyboard like just a really interesting band and I played the bass for that one gig and it was like the funnest oh, cool. gig. I mean, I've played with her for a few years and <laughs> really enjoyed it. It was a yeah. real highlight for me professionally to be a little part of her world for a couple of years there. But that one gig, I just loved it. It was, but the irony was that it was like so bitterly cold and the tour manager, like an hour before we went on, he went out and bought like Merino wool, uh, 
undergarments for everybody. And I played bass with gloves on and like, it was just the craziest gig, but it was so fun. Um, but the phone hasn't rang since then. So I don't know, maybe I blew it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember that Olympics, uh, those couple of weeks, actually that whole month surrounding the Olympics was so like as a Vancouver musician, because I was living there at the time, uh, I mean, it was like a, it was like a bonanza of crazy. I did so many crazy gigs that week. It was and like, like no matter where the gig was, it just, they all felt like privates. They all were like, so corporate, yeah. you know what I mean? It's just like yeah. every, yeah. every stage sort of had a lot of corporate money behind it. Shocking actually. But, um, I still have the laminate in my garage there. I did one like in Robson square and like an outdoor gig. And I was playing like, almost like John Fahey kind of style, like really quiet, weird, half improvised instrumental acoustic guitar music (laughs) and they had these like flamethrowers shooting out from the stage (laughs) beside like as i was playing which made no sense but they were uh that's how they were rolling in those for those weeks pretty cool pyrotechnics pretty cool at the time i probably like you know made jokes about it or something but you know as you get older you you uh in my case you know you you start to realize geez that was pretty awesome to be a part of that and how how much gratitude i have for that you know um, even as were you on the televised thing at all with her for the Olympics? Yeah. You know like, what? Were you guys part of the opening even, ceremony or anything? I'm not even sure if it was televised. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised actually, but, uh, I was smoked a lot of weed back then. So I was kind of, uh, a little <laughs> unaware. little unaware of what was going on sometimes, you know, <laughs> hopefully it was still charming yeah. and able to hold down on the base. I think my buddy Bob Chemis was your guitar tech. Is that, mm-hmm. am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. And everyone's buddy, Bob Chemis. Um, he's such a great guy. Yeah. I saw him a couple of weeks ago, actually. I was in Vancouver for a show and he sent me a text uh, saying that he was having his birthday party in a park. And so um, I stopped by there and hung out with him a little bit. It was nice to see him. Oh, wicked. Yeah. yeah, I saw him here too. He was doing some stuff with Elvis Costello. And, yeah, he's always out uh, with Elvis now. It sounds like a pretty plush gig. Yeah, Gets to touch a lot good. of jazz masters. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this new record of yours, man. So Bootcut is coming out. I can't remember when exactly, but I've, Comes out I, Friday. I got my mitts on it a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, and you made that here in Nashville at Sound Emporium. I did. Have you worked there? I have worked at Sound Emporium. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty legendary room. Yes. I, well, I can't say I've worked in uh, any other studios actually in Nashville. So, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was that is a room and I'm sure there are others that have this quality, but that room certainly like you can stand anywhere yep. and it sounds good in there. Like the bathroom sounds good and the hallway sounds good and the whatever I feel like back there, back then when they were building studios, maybe there just wasn't environmental regulations in the same way or building codes were different. I just feel like there's so much asbestos and like cancer causing materials in there that are, in the floor and in the walls and it just sounds so good it's crazy you're right about that for sure over over here i live really close to dave rawlings and gillian welch's place and he when he was they were sort of like revamping some stuff and he was like he was at the time he was sourcing asbestos filled tiles so that he could be like are you serious yeah period he wanted to be period correct and like get the right because normally you know the the easiest thing to do is to just make a room dead, right? Like that's yeah. kind of usually the solution is just to like, if it doesn't have a pleasing live sound, you exactly. just like baffle it, whether it's with egg cartons or moving blankets or whatever you use. Um, but this place was weird because it, it really like, 
like we recorded a fair bit with the upright bass and the drums all in the same room and they weren't that far from each other. Yeah. And if you muted, if you muted the bass, you would assume that there'd be a ton of drums in it. Yeah. But there wasn't, it was just like something about the, the, the floor is just so solid and, and things aren't traveling in the same way. That being said, they're not dead. They're not, they're still alive. They are still breathing and interacting with other things. So there's really a magic alchemy to a room like that. And um, it was a thrill to work there for sure. Was that your idea? Like, had you been there and you wanted to work there or was it the, your producers? Uh, I, I mean, um, I, I know Dan Nobler worked on this record and I know he, yeah. likes, he likes working there. Well, we, during the lockdowns, I had done this series called live to tape where I work with, with, you know, musicians would be in LA or Nashville and I'd be here in Nova Scotia and we would uh, record together and then, sort of stitch it, stitch it up afterwards. And we, we made this YouTube series and that was quite fun. And and so the band worked at sound Emporium when we did that. Oh, okay. And in fact, some of the guys that we ended up using on the bootcut record were on that original session. <clears throat> and so it just sounded so good. I just said, man, that sounded good. And then I realized that like Don Williams cut most of his records there and he's a huge um, hero for me. I just love those albums. Like, it's actually this guy, Garth Fundus is the producer on a lot of those records who, and I don't know if he works very much anymore, but anyway, it was essentially his studio for a period there. Like that's where he worked. And, um, I, you know, I don't, I'm not like a terribly nostalgic person or like in general, but it was cool when we actually got there and like the, the congas are like, those are the congas that have been sitting there in that corner of the room forever. And that's the, you know, B3 and that's the piano. And like, so it's just kind of cool that they haven't really messed with it too much. I'd imagine like when a big A-level band comes in there, they probably empty the room and there's like flight cases in the hallway with just boats of guitars and all that stuff. But we kind of just went in there and used what they had and it sounded really good. Yeah. So um, you were in there, like, give me an idea of how you guys rolled through the, through the session. Was it, um, was it like a week or something that you were in there or how long did it take? I think we were in there for four days and oh, okay. um, Dan Nobler the, was the co-producer and he um, helped like with the charts and, and sort of, you know, I'd send him some of my just phone recordings of the songs I wanted to do. And we ended up doing 18 songs, which oh, wow. was, which was cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, like the whole method of working down there is really off of charts for the most part. Yeah. And uh, we would do two or three takes of a tune and that was kind of, that was kind of it, you know, (laughs) I wish I could say it was like a real struggle, but in fact, it was just the opposite. It was a real joy and uh, the musicians are just such a high caliber. And, um, and also I think just this, the maturity, you know, in, in, in any field, whether it's music or anything else, when you were start working with people who are in their sixties and seventies, they just have that much more experience to draw from. And they don't have that quiet confidence that you can kind of, you know, you can lean on as a singer and as a, as a performer, as a writer, yeah. you can tr- totally trust that. Yeah. And <clears throat> there were very few instances where I was sort of asking people to, do something or play something, you know, I'd just start playing the song and people would kind of naturally find the place. And, Mm -hmm. and that's usually the case in my experience. I'm sure you feel the same, but when you work with great players, you often don't have to, you don't talk about what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. You just, if, if someone's usually, if there's something going on that doesn't feel right, it's just apparent to everyone at the same time. And then you kind of all make a shift and a change and, 
And a lot of that stuff happens uh, silently or just musically. And maybe that's a better word or something. It's just all that conversing and problem solving is just happening in real time. And um, so, yeah, I, I um, it was a, you know, it was, it was easy. I hate to say it was uh, I hate to say it. I, I wish it was a better story. I wish it was like, Oh, we toiled and <laughs> we worked until four in the morning. And, but you know, no, we, 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 we play, uh, thankfully I had a lot of material yeah. to draw from and, and we played a lot of songs and, and we had nice uh, lunch and had, you know, good conversations too. So it was just a thrill to hang out with those guys for a few days. Yeah. I find the pace down here is, is really bonkers. Like it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle somewhere, like the, the pace that I used to work at in Vancouver was one thing. And the pace that I work at being a Vancouver raised person here is a different pace, but then there's the Nashville. If I go in to play like pedal steel or guitar or something on a session, the pace of the whole day is so crazy. It's, it's like one or two takes move on to the next thing. And that's how everyone down here is used to working. And I find mm -hmm. when you, when you slow that down a little bit, interesting things happen. Like people, some people get really antsy. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed that or mm. if people, maybe they didn't do that on your session, but some of those guys that have been at it forever, they're used to cutting, you know, six songs a day. And when you slow that down to like two, three songs a day, or even four, I know some, some of those guys, like some of those top call session guys are just like, mm. well, I mean, we are, we just did it. What do we, why, why do we mm -hmm. need to do it again? Mm -hmm. Was there any of that going yeah, on? Yeah, there was, um, I think it's really just that energy that like often the first day has an energy because people are getting their headphone balanced and you're getting sound, you're making sure the sound is, Oh, there's a problem with the cable engineers running in and out of the room. And then, you know, so yeah. that first day often has that stop and start feeling, which can be a little frustrating because every, everyone's really excited to just get playing. Yeah. And, um, and I have learned now I'm for quite a while now. I like, I've just kind of tried to take more of a Neil Young approach or a David in order to protect that, that initial energy. I just don't even come to the studio until they're kind of like ready, ready to, go. to go. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, there's no part of me that wants to, to be like a rock star or anything like that. But I, again, like, I don't want to like miss out on that initial energy. Yeah, you know, I totally I don't mind that. doing multiple takes. I don't, I don't romanticize like, you know, the idea of like not rehearsing or no demos, like whatever works for people. But for me, I just want to like as close to possible as that initial dialogue that's important. Is, is kind of, that's important. So um, yeah, I try and just let the engineers and the producers and everything get like, I don't need to be there when they're, smacking on the snare drum and stuff like that. It's just yeah. like, you just end up drinking like six cups of coffee, <laughs> you know, and the session starts at 10 a.m. and you're not actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, I found, you know, on day two or three, then everyone's in a groove, everyone shows up in the morning, gets their coffee, and you basically start working right away because you've kind of gone over the pleasantries and the introductions yeah. and all that, and your sound's good, headphones are good. Um, and so I usually, and I, I, I'm pretty sure we did this on this session is you often go back and revisit the songs that you did on the first day and you realize that you played them maybe a little too fast or just something about the approach wasn't quite right. And so it's just great to be in a position where you can kind of, you know, take another crack at those songs. Even the, the arrangement might be the exact same. You just play it totally differently. You know, now that you've settled into it, you're more comfortable 
everything's fitting a little bit better and sounding just making more sense to you in the, in the headphone and in the, in the playback. Yeah. And so, yeah, really try and try and take advantage of that on the, on the third and fourth day and maybe recut some of those tunes. 18 songs is a lot. Was that the initial uh, goal was to do that many tunes or was it just like you were getting through so many and you had a bunch or did you always plan to go in and do 18? No, I think we did. um, I think we did 13 or 14 with the band. And then I had uh, Sam Bush came by and Mickey Raphael came by to play harp on some stuff and on two separate days. Okay. And, um, so it would be kind of a thing where like we would work with the band and then we would let the band leave and, you know, Sam and I would work the back half of the day and same thing with Mickey. Yeah. So I just, I just so enjoyed working with both of them that basically like after we had kind of got them to play on all the tracks that we had envisioned having them on, I just said, do you want to just sit down and play a bit together as a duo? And we sort of rearranged the mics a little bit and, uh, and Mickey and I did three or four tunes and Sam oh, and I really? did the same thing. We just sort of, oh, yeah. Cool. And I, they, so those things didn't necessarily make it on the record, but I, I, you know, I, I just love playing with them and I just thought, yeah. geez, like, I mean, this is a, it's kind of a cool thing to have in your back pocket too, though. Right. Like who knows? Totally. And I, and you know, I hope it's not a once in a lifetime thing. And I, and, but really, even if it was just for me, like, um, selfishly I, i'm you know obviously flattered that those guys would come by the studio and, and play with me and just it was just so fun just just hanging out you know what i mean yeah um hanging out in a cool room sounded great good people and and so i played a couple tunes i just played like older songs and then i played a couple newer songs that we, that, that we didn't even cut with the band then we did another song that i did with the band but we did a totally different version and just yeah. stuff like that you know it was a little, just more casual oh that's cool yeah it was fun so for the songs that did make the record, did you cut your vocals live? Do you go back in and redo them? How do you approach singing? It's a bit of both. It's a yeah. bit of both. Um, you know how it is. Like sometimes you just get a great one and you almost build the mix around that vocal. It just ends up being the, the defining thing. Um, and then we did, once we got, once we left Nashville, I flew to Toronto in uh, a couple of months later. And we, we sort of tend to do the mixing and the vocals at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, the mixing, I'm not like, I don't, not someone who needs to be there on the couch while you're tweaking the kick drum and getting, you know what I mean? Like doing all that fine detailed work, which is important work, but I'm just like, <clears throat> it's not helpful for me to be backseat driving. I find um, in those, so I tend to. When you work with people you, you trust, you don't need to. You don't need to micromanage that shit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that works better for me. And I know some people like to be much, much more involved in the mix. And, but yeah, so for me, I tend to kind of want to go into the mix process when it's pretty far along. So, so in the tracking process, um, you know, you're kind of mixing as you go and you're, you're getting a sound that, that feels realized and full. And so when I, when I, when I went to Toronto, you know, it's sort of like, when I needed to re-sing something, it's like you're almost singing on top of a finished mix. Right. Um, very, which is, very glorious. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome, right? Because you're kind of like, okay, everything is just sounding right the way it should. And you can respond to that dynamically and just emotionally like the way you want to as a singer. And um, so, yeah, I think it's about half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's definitely tunes that uh, 
are that we recorded live off the floor at Sound Emporium. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of the musicians like on the third and fourth day were just, you know, we'd be on a lunch break or a coffee break or something. And they independently came up to me and said, Hey, like, this is really fun. There's no part of me that wants to be a nostalgia or throwback or vintage or whatever, but the musicians were all kind of telling me that like most of the records they work, work on are done much more like in the more modern pro tools where you're building up the track you know, you're starting with a beat or something and you're building up layers of tracks on top of it. And so, you know, they were, they were all kind of like, this is the way we used to cut records, you know, playing, playing together. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's a reason why it sort of has that appeal, right? Cause it's just sort of has that conversational quality to it where the musicians are responding to each other in the bait, you know, the drummer does a little fill and the bass player kind of just, wow, you know, he, he, locks right in there and it's like it's so special at this point in the show i'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season we couldn't do it without their support and this year they are mule resophonics swing wider for inspiration with mule resophonic guitars these are resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players not just blues guitars not just slide guitars you don't need to play them in open tunings they're set up with normal acoustic guitar action and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game trust me they're wicked these musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I can never figure out why people are surprised when you work that way. Like, that's the way that I work, too, is always with people playing together. I just can't, I can't, I don't have the patience to sit there and like do a bed track of drums and have the bass player play to that. And you start, you know, microscoping mm -hmm. every note and then, you know, overdubbing guitar layers and whatnot. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me anymore. I guess I used to do that way back in the day, but to me, that's like where all the magic happens. I think it's just a control thing, right? It's like, it, there's no doubt. Like when you do it that way, you do have 
more control. Now, is that better? I mean, that's like, yeah. you know, for me, I, I don't, I don't think it's better. And in some cases it's, you know, like, let's say you have a vocal and that's the vocal, you know, and it sort of forces you to commit to the drum sound or something. Um, and then you get to some point in the process and you're like, ah, the snare drum's bothering me, but I can't really change the snare too much because it's actually the room mic for the vocal. And, you know, I mean, you know all about this stuff, but it's like, yeah, I actually find whatever those frustrating things are in the moment when you're trying to solve them quite often, they, those are the exact same things that end up becoming your favorite part of the recording is the thing that you didn't plan that you actually tried to struggle to get rid of and fight against. And then you're listening to it and you're kind of like, Oh, I love how that worked out that way, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of, it's humbling, right? Cause, cause even as much experience as you might have and you, we all have our methods that we like to use for recording drums or recording. And, and then the thing that you actually didn't plan or didn't have any control over is the thing that's special. And, uh, it's just so fun and surprising yeah. and, and, uh, probably part of the reason why we all keep seeking that out. Right. We all want that experience is that just feeling like you're discovering some new thing that's beyond your control. Tell me about the vocal sounds. I feel like through your recorded output, you've got, I don't know, is yeah. this your sixth yeah. record, I think, or seventh, sixth record. So it's like, there definitely is some consistency from the beginning of Pink Strat to now, which is like, the, like the vocals always seem quite dry to me. They're like really, like mm-hmm. really upfront and in, and like loud, but you're clearly mm-hmm. singing pretty quiet. I know you've worked with, uh, with um, Robbie, is it Lacritz? Lacritz. Yeah. So he's been a pretty consistent player in your records for quite a while now too. Is that something like conceptually, have you guys ever like talked about that or is that something that you work um, on or is it just the way you sing and the way that you want it to sound? Actually, I mean, we've certainly discussed it and we, we do, you know, um, yeah, we have discussed it. I think I have to really give credit to Feist for that technique. I used to sing a lot louder and try to sort of like communicate the emotional weight of something with volume. Yeah. And then she, she sort of uh, just, she described it like, just imagine that you're laying on the pillow next to your lover and you have to like tell them something that's the most important tender thing. You know, what, what dynamic are you going to do that in? Well, it's probably, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The the thing that's actually the most, your most vulnerable secret, whatever that is, whether it's, I love you or guess what? I can't do this anymore. And we have to break up. Like whatever that thing is, you're probably going to do it. The volume is going to be like this big, you know, and you could, you know, you could take advantage of the power of the microphone and really actually like, there's just so much sonic information there. And actually I've found that since I started doing that with the vocals, I found that with almost every instrument. If you think about like a, a drum, when you hit a drum harder, it's not necessarily like the pleasing parts of the drum that get louder. Sometimes it is, but, but often, especially with bass too, like bass, I, I love cranking the bass and then just barely touching the string. And there's just so much sort of blooming sound. That's just like, you know, it's incredible, actually. Um, Pedal steel's like that too, and, yeah, and, 
and ele- electric guitar and acoustic guitar. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, the biggest trick I think that is not that much of a secret, but that nobody seems to understand is like with recording drums. Some of the biggest, hugest drum sounds ever are like just tight, super quietly yeah. performed. You know. Well, I worked with uh, James Gadsden on uh, this Earth Tones. Yeah, record. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, and he's yeah. a phenomenal player. But but you know, I mean, there's some pretty the compelling video footage of him uh thanks to youtube and all that or you can see all this stuff now but he has that ability right where it's just like he sure does he's barely touching that snare. he's barely touching it and even and even like you know what he's playing it might just literally be four on the floor or just like the most basic beat like what i would call like a neil young beat or something like that but he has that ability that all great players have to just get more out of each quarter note it just somehow his quarter note feels this <laughs> wide. When I hit it, it's like, it's this thin little thing. And when he hits the snare drum, it's just, yep. it's like fills up the entire quarter note, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's obviously really valuable. Jay Pellerose is like that too. Totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really interesting <clears throat> um, as a singer to try and apply some of those principles and, um, yeah, I think I have been doing that since the beginning. Was that something that you, like, have you developed it and worked on it? Or were you just like, oh, I got to sing this way, and then you just did it? Or, like, because that's a hard thing to do live. Because live, like, there's a lot of pressure to project, and, like, nerves can get going, and, like, it's going to make you sing louder. Were you just able to mm-hmm. kind of, like, flip a switch and and get into this really dynamic, quieter kind of singing right away? Live is harder. Live is harder. And I tend to sing louder live um, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, That being said, like I'll, I'll often do like a solo set or something or some sort of stripped down thing in the middle of the set and try and bring in some of that dynamic range. That's more intimate or more sort of just like more it's, it's, it's somehow there's a soft power to it. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a, there's a way to own a room with volume. And then there's a way to own a room by just being so vulnerable and, and tender that people can't help but be on the edge of their seats. And I've been a spectator at shows with other artists who had that quality, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and sort of recognize that maybe I had an ability to do a similar thing. And and so tried to kind of develop that a little bit over the years, but yeah, I think it's, if you look at all, uh, it, all the great, w- the wisest people throughout time, they often weren't screaming at the top of their lungs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, out- They're sort of delivering their message with a, with a sort of quiet confidence that you really have no question of then you have no option, sorry, than to just uh, listen yeah, and whether that information kind of makes it into you and, and connects with you as it is comes afterwards. But in terms of a delivery system for for moving sort of emotional information from one person to another, I find that that sort of soft technique tends to work um, more consistently for me. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you learn to develop that part of your voice too. Like Al Green is another good example of somebody who you think would be like screaming and he's singing super quiet. And even that, like when he does that, like super distorted kind of thing, Matt Rosbang told me who was working with him and he's like, yeah, everyone thinks that he's overloading the microphone with volume, but he's like, he's not, it's, that's what his voice sounds mm. like, which is crazy. Yeah. crazy but yeah. Like, the, 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 the mic is just dimed, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think all instruments kind of, 
are like that. I mean, there, there are those rare occasions where, you know, I'm Dave Grohl hits the drums hard and it sounds pretty <laughs> right. awesome. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But, um, there are exceptions. But yeah. I think, I think in general, it's, uh, I actually saw David Rawlings, uh, and Jillian Welch play in Toronto at this club and it sounded so good. And at one point, you know, how he moves around so much when he's playing, he just, just brushed the mic, which was just a 57. Yeah. He just, just brushed it. And it was like the loudest sound <laughs> like I had ever heard. Like everyone went like that, like as if the ceiling was going to collapse. Yeah. And, it's just and you realize the mic is just wound right out and, yeah. and all the dynamics, all that moving around and, and the way he's playing is, is it's just incredible how much range there is there that, that he's in complete control of, you know? Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Really cool. Um, so tell me about some of the other players on this record. So you mentioned Sam Bush and Mickey Raphael. So those guys, they came in as overdubs. Yeah. Um, they played, they, we, they played a little bit with the band. Like, like we do like half the day, okay. you know, as part of the band. And then we sort of let break the band. And, and uh, like I said, sort of try and do some overdubs with them on tracks that we had cut the previous day or whatever. So the, the steel stuff, I think it's Russ Paul plays all the steel, right? Yeah, that guy. Yeah, no Russ. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he's uh, just phenomenal guy. But he sounds more intertwined in the in the tracking. Like, was he playing live with yeah. you guys? Okay, no, no, he was in the band. And actually, like his guitar playing, I, I, um, I'm sure he'll forgive my ignorance, but I didn't really know he was a guitar player too, because yeah. I find a lot of steel players, especially in Nashville, it's like this is what I do, you know. But his guitar playing was just really great and. He's also one of the um, most recorded banjo players in in history. <laughs> see, I didn't know that. Yeah. I had no idea. And if you said he played mandolin and did all this other stuff, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he's really a knowledgeable, talented guy and yeah. knew a lot about uh, red wing boots. And he just knew about cool stuff. He winds his, like, <laughs> his own pickups and shit. You know, he's... Does he? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, for the steel, wow, but also for guitar. Like, if you ever want really weird, cool guitar pickups, he's your, he's your, he's got all this crazy shit in his basement where he just, like, winds them himself, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, he's he likes having projects. And, yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, so we had some nice hangs just even on the breaks and stuff. But, yeah, he's a phenomenal steel player for sure. Added a lot for, you know. So the, the, the concept of this record, which is... I would say sort of country tinged, but it's certainly not like a country record, even though like I would imagine people are going to say it's the Bahamas country record, but it's not, it's not a country record. Although there's definitely like a couple of songs that are pretty honky tonkish, but was sure. <clears throat> having the steel as such a prominent voice kind of brings you into that world a little bit. Was that, was that like what you set out to do like with their songwriting and stuff as well? Or like, when did that come into focus that you were going to do that and like have the pedal steel be a part of it and like have this sound that was sort of like what it is. I mean, the, the whole thing kind of kicked off during the pandemic when we did these remote recordings Yeah, and I work with Russ and Dave Rowe and Dan Nobler for those sessions where we're doing these remote things. And so as soon as we did that, I thought, geez, I mean, that was so cool. Like if, it, if I could only get down there, then we would really have something special. And so then I started writing material with, with that in mind and okay. trying to pick songs that I had already written with that might fit in that dynamic. And, um, but yeah, I, I don't, I never said like, I want to make a country record or, or an, a nostalgic record or anything like that. It was, it, I kind of think like, it's just, it's like Ray Charles 
made a country record and Neil Young made a country record and Bob Dylan recorded in Nashville. It's like, I, I, it's really those players. I wanted to work with those players, you know? Yeah. And definitely as soon as you start to put the pedal seal on things, it, it has a tendency to just lean into that thing that much harder. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'd say the biggest thing was just choosing the material that fit that group of players and really kind of allowed them to, to step out and, and um, yeah. Yeah. Just contribute all that, you know, great stuff to it and really elevate the, the songs. But um, the core band was you. And so Dave Rowe on bass, who was like Johnny Cash's bass player and phenomenal yeah. you know, old school Nashville dude, Russ Paul, who was playing drums on the bulk of it? The drums um, was guy, John Radford. And in fact, the day before we were, we were meant to have uh, Brady blade. Oh yeah. Um, who I didn't know, but you know, came highly recommended and um honestly the only criteria i i said to um, my manager was like i just want to work with people in their 70s and cool and so i totally get that we had we had gene chrisman um who had played on this uh session so it was basically russ paul Debro, and gene chrisman yeah and dan nobler was playing guitar and sort of acting as a band leader and you know running the session and stuff. And, um, so Gene Crispin broke his arm oh, a couple of weeks before the session. So then we got Brady blade who we had to make an exception. Cause I, I think he's in his sixties. And doesn't he live in, and then, doesn't, doesn't he live in Sweden? I didn't know that at the time, but apparently he lives in Sweden, but I guess he works in Nashville a fair okay. bit. Um, then he had a COVID, uh, so he wasn't able to come. Oh shit. And then, you know, so I was panicking for a couple of minutes and then Dan was like, this is Nashville. There's like 10 A-list drummers, like just, you yeah. know, uh, and, and you know, I, I don't mean to be ignorant about it, but I just like, I just said, you just find someone like, I don't, yeah. I'm not like super knowledgeable about all the guys that are working and available. And yeah. Um, so he, he called John and John was, he, first of all, he knew my music, which was kind of flattering and cool that he was aware of it and, and, um, hip to it. And, and he was available, said, Hey, can you work tomorrow for four days? And he's like, sure, let's do it. Um, and that worked out great. He's a phenomenal player and, and, uh, was the youngest of the band and, mm -hmm. and he was psyched to work with Dave and, and Russ and everybody. So that was cool to, to, uh, have that, have the band and they were just played so beautifully together. And Jen Gunderman, was she overdubbing or was she as part of that? And Jen Gunderman came, she came for one day okay. and was part of the band. Yeah. And, um, she's awesome. And, uh, so yeah, we kind of did that thing where like there was the core band and then one day we had Jen Gunderman and then the next day we had Sam Bush and then the next day we had Mickey Raphael, like always kind of add in like an extra ingredient, an extra yeah. instrument, um, to that core. And, you know, again, try and pick the material that would fit that yeah. player for that day type of thing, you know? And, do you ever run into like nerves and like, does, does it freak you out walking into Sound Emporium and have a bunch of 70 year old seasoned vets sitting there ready to go? Or are you just excited and happy to be there? You know what, as, as uh, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but as long as the songs are really good, no, I don't feel, I don't feel nervous or intimidated at all. Yeah. As long as I've done the work ahead of time and I know that the material is like the best it could be. Yeah. And I know that I can actually sing it and deliver it then I feel like I can hold my own with those guys, right? Like they're phenomenal musicians and would clean the floor with me just on a, on a musical basis. But as a songwriter, I feel like I, I can, I can be there and I can, I I'm, I'm worthy of being there 
and I'm worthy of having all of them there. Yeah. Support the song, you know, it's the right attitude and, to have. Yeah, for sure. So I just try and do a lot of work on the front end um, so that I just show up with the best possible material um, that I can. So I'm curious about that aspect of things, like how prepared you actually come. So take a tune like Into the Unknown on the new record, which to me is really interesting because like it's it it's very like the melodies are very like carefully laid out. The bass playing mm-hmm. is insane and like pretty adventurous for 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 the, that style. Um, mm-hmm. t- tell me a bit about like, do you come in to a session like that with all the vocal nuances kind of work? Like, I don't mean the, the performance exactly, but like as far as like things that you're going to harmonize, like little vocal melodies that happen through a song like that. How much of that stuff do you have like in your back pocket ready to go versus what happens on the fly? Uh, it's, I think it's 50, 50. I oh, think okay. that that much. I think that um, I like a lot of people, like I really do subscribe to that idea of like, if, if, if you can make it sound good with just acoustic guitar and vocal, yeah, that's a good sign. That's a good indication that you have something that's worthy. Right. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, on a song like into the unknown, like the guitar playing has the melody in it. It has everything. It has all the information in it in terms of how the song should go. Yeah. So that's, that is a good example of like when we're like, there isn't much discussion. I just sort of kick it off and right away the band kind of settled into that groove, you know? Did you have to push um, Dave to like get a little wiggy in there or, or was he just like, Hey, I'm going to do my, this. the only version, the only version of me pushing Dave because he played upright a fair bit. Yeah. And anytime I felt like I kind of wanted things to be more, quote unquote exciting i just said hey dave why don't you try playing electric okay and um and he was you know thrilled and and he's a great just has a great player. p bay great electric player and yeah. and he really has a couple tra- in fact he's got uh, on one song the song i'm still we got to the end which sort of the song ends on this big guitar solo that i did and then I was just loving the groove so much. I was kind of just like signaling to the band like keep going keep going yeah and then I was pointing at Dave like just like keep going like he i don't think he really knew that he was doing a bass solo but <laughs> everyone great, else was it's a great everyone spot else for was a just hanging yeah yeah just right at the end of the track and yeah. and it's like there's a was a guitar solo that kind of builds and builds and builds and then the band kind of just keeps this groove going for another minute and a half or whatever and the bass is just <laughs> exploring the space in such a fun way yeah yeah. And I, and you know, it was, it was a classic, right? Like everybody in the studio kind of laughed afterwards, like, Oh my God, haha, we did a bass solo and he was laughing and, and it's I such was a like, cool moment. that's, yeah. I was like, dude, that's like, that's Stan. part of the song now. It's yeah. like, that's Stan for sure. He's and he's like, no, no. But then he sent me a text a little a couple of weeks ago, just saying he, he it was apparently it's his first bass solo on record Come and on. he's been cutting records for a long time. And I was like, dude, I'm honored. I'm honored. It's uh but anyway, it's uh, he's a phenomenal player for sure. And, and um, he really did. He did. He's one of those guys that tends to lead the band. Yep. Um, you know, there's a producer and then there's the artist, but he really is someone who he's not, he'll pipe in with his, uh, with his ideas and, and often his ideas are good ones. And, and, and he introduced me to this word diamond, which I didn't know anything about. It's a Nashville word. We call them goose eggs in Canada. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, after on like day three or something, like they're like, should we put a diamond on that? And then, you know, I, I said, okay, guys, 
you got to tell me what the hell are you saying? What's diamond? It's like, it's a whole note. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair I, enough. I called them goose eggs for about five years when I lived down here and everyone just laughed, laughed at me basically for five minutes yeah. after I would say goose egg. So I started saying diamond too. <laughs> it works pretty good. Works pretty good. It does. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. it's a common language. Uh, so, what about all the touches on a tune like that? Like the the backup vocals are really cool and definitely like well thought out. And mm-hmm. there's quite a few layers of all that stuff. I think there's a bass harmonica, if I'm hearing that correctly, mm-hmm. on that track. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's probably some Mellotron on there or something. Does that stuff all kind of get built mm-hmm. as overdubs, or um, how do you approach that? The backup vocals should, certainly were done as overdubs. I, especially in the bridge and stuff, like I had this, ooh, yeah. this melody, this reoccurring melody, and I sang a lot of that. And then Felicity, who tours with me and has sang on uh, a bunch of my recordings, like um, she came in and she sang on that track, and she sang on uh, Sports Car, um, okay. and she's 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 incredible. But yeah, that was done as an overdub. And um, what about the bass harmonica? The bass harmonica, I'm trying to remember if he was he was doing that live or how we did that, but that's such a wicked that, instrument. That, it is a crazy instrument, and I'm kind of shocked actually that it made it on there, frankly, because really? it's like well, well, no, no, I'm glad that it did. I just mean it's it's sort of like uh it's like B3 or something. It's like once it's in, it's very hard to just come out. Yeah. It's you know a, what I mean? So the way he he made he played it in that pulsing it's a nashville staple like it's been a big part of pop music here for 50 years but yeah a lot i of people I don't just, realize I'm that. really yeah i haven't really tuned into that but but I, it was really cool to hear him do that and he, this sort of pulsing rhythmic thing yeah as almost a call and response to the to the main phrase of the chorus and uh it just fit perfectly it was like that's it we don't you know because i always thought that because we did have some lap steel fills and things like that responding and and but that bass harmonica thing just adds so much you know um so what about your guitar stuff on this record like there's a few guitar players so i don't know who's doing what but like are you doing solos are you just playing like what's your what's your role on this record um i played mostly acoustic guitar and sang. yeah and uh and then i did this I did part one of the solos on that tune, working on my guitar, and Vince Gill did the other one. We did like oh, a classic Nashville okay. sort yeah. of back back and forth, you know. Yeah. Um, and mine's all fuzzed out and kind of like Bahamas style. And then yeah. when he comes in, it's like the perfect Telecaster <laughs> right. tone. It's like to the point where I'm like, is this just a plug-in that you have ready to go? Like I wouldn't, Are you I wouldn't real? be surprised. Like. Well, I I know that he's got like a crazy guitar collection, but I just like the sound was just like perfect he only sent one thing and he just said you know hey like no problem if you don't like it no problem at all but that's what i was hearing oh so he it was he, like the perfect thing he sent that track to you. you he wasn't there when you guys did that yeah his i don't know he had some his mother had some health problems or something he was going to come to the studio and then he, he wasn't able to come at the last minute and again i was just like totally blown away that he was even going to be a part of this thing but did, um, did you have him 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 in mind for that song like was that something that you'd thought about I, I was wanting him to be part of the band. I was like, okay. you know, cause I know he loves to play and loves to hang with musicians. And I was like, listen, like, I'm sure like, I'm sure it'd be cool to like have a track that says featuring Vince Gill, but I would rather just have you come and be part of the band and like play guitar and hang out, you know? Um, and he's got obviously a great harmony singing voice. That was like, you know, I was, 
but anyway, um, yeah, so he wasn't able to come and I was a bit bummed. And then, you know, when he offered to just like, if you want to send me some tracks, I can, I can play Cause he's got a studio at home too. Right. So, yeah. um, he was able to do that and send it back, which was really, really cool. Um, had you met him and played with him somewhere? Like what was the relationship no, with him? No, I've never met him. I've never met him. And, um, you know, what's strange is like this record earth tones that I made in 2017, I didn't realize that that had kind of had such a, an effect in Nashville. Like a lot of musicians that I've met in Nashville know that record and they cite that record to me, you know, they're like, Oh man, I love the sound. I love the playing. But that's the, you know, least country record that I've done. But for whatever reason, that something about that record really connected down there. Yeah. And, um, and musician, it's like one of those things where musicians have pass it to other musicians and some of them for sonic reasons and others for songwriting or guitar playing or, you know what I mean? It was like, it just kind of made its way amongst musicians, which of course is like, that's the thing you can't plan that. And, um, I'm just flattered and surprised whenever that happens, but that's the one that um, Pino Palladino and, and yeah. James Gadsden play on, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and Christine Bougie, who plays guitar with me, is all over that record. Her and I have she's been playing awesome. together for, she's amazing. She's like my favorite player, man. She's just so good. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that, like, you know, Dan Nobler, Russ Day, like all these guys and, and um, John Radford, like they'd all heard of this music before we worked together, which was yeah. awesome, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know how we got hooked up with Vince, but I'm somehow. glad that we did I mean, yeah. somehow, but I, th <laughs> I think it was just like a musician to musician thing. You know what I mean? It was like someone in that circle was just like, Hey, I'm working on this cool thing. Do you want to be a part of it? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, that sounds rad. And, and, um, ultimately he was able to do something for it, which was really cool. But, uh, that's awesome. It is awesome. I'm playing next week at the Opry and I, I, um, I asked him to play with me. Unfortunately, he's, he's playing with the Eagles, so he can't, uh, <laughs> he's like, oh, I'd love to, but I got to go out with the knuckleheads again. And I was like, yeah, all right. You're the lead singer of the Eagles. I kind of yeah. forgot, but, yeah. but, uh, at some point we'll, we'll, we'll get together and hang out. And I actually, I have an, I have an old Blackguard guitar that I was able to buy a while ago. And I know he's like a huge guitar collector too. He so I'd love to just degenerate guitar fiend. I know. Yeah. And I typically, I'm not like a huge gear guy. Like I do love old guitars and I'm lucky to have a, a few nice ones, but, um, I feel like with him, I would love to go deep on yeah. the Bakelite pick guard of, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's just totally. like, that would be the guy to go deep with or, or him and Colin Cripps would be like the Cripps has two got people a few to kind of, too, yeah. for sure. For sure. Uh, is, I know at one point you were playing one of those nacho telecasters is that still your yeah i still have it i still have it it's not here it's in toronto it's um getting shipped out i guess but is that your guitar um, of choice still you know what i love it yeah I, it's a great guitar i don't know if you've played one but it's uh i have not phenomenal guitar they're hard to come by I, i've never you're the, you're they one. are yeah okay so i had been looking for i had heard about them because i you know i wanted a black guard and just couldn't make it happen at the time and so then I got hipped onto these nacho guitars and found out that like every serious tele player, this is like, this is the one, right? It's like the one that people take on the road. And 
Brad Paisley, you know, is texting Brad Paisley about he's a crazy guitar player, guitar collector too. And he's yeah. got all these black guards. And in fact, you know, he re, um, restores them and refinishes them and does stuff a bit of a luthier himself, but really anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, you know, he's, he's got a lot of different hobbies. Sounds like he's into a lot of different stuff, but anyway, the nacho guitar, I've been looking for one. And then I found one in new Brunswick, like one came up for sale on, right. on, uh, on the reverb and it was in new Brunswick. So I wrote the guy, I was like, Hey, I'm in Nova Scotia. Like, can I just drive up and try it? And he's like, yeah, for sure. I drove up there. We drank coffee. We played guitar for a bit and I was like, all right, like, I'll, um, I'll take it. I'll, I'd love to buy this guitar. Like I I'm like, he wanted uh cash and, or, um, or I don't even know if he said he wanted cash, but anyway, I didn't have cash. And I said, let me just run downtown to the bank and I'll get cash and, and come back. And he's like, you know what? Just take it. Just mail me a check. <laughs> and so the guy let me walk away with this like pretty valuable guitar. Yeah. yeah they're not. I cheap, just thought right? it was such a cool, like Canadian, yeah. you know, Testament to, uh, um, all the goodwill that still exists amongst Canadians and amongst musicians and stuff yeah. like the guy just let me leave with this guitar and I sent him a check and, and it all worked out, you know, but anyway, all that to say is if you get a chance to, to play one, they're really, really good. And now I, I, since then I, I have been able to, I have a black art, um, and it's a monster guitar for sure. But this, this thing is, is pretty damn close, you know? In so fact, that- I'd say it's just sort of different. It's just different. It's like, it's its own thing, but it's, cool. um, yeah. Is the telly thing for you? Does it, does it kind of do everything that you need a guitar to do as far as like, I mean, you're a really well-versed guitar player. You were like a kind of a session guy around Toronto for a long, a long time mm-hmm. and played with a lot of different bands. Does the, I mean, for me, I'm kind of the same. Like I, I play different instruments, but when I'm playing an electric guitar, a telly just feels like pretty much everything I could ever need except for maybe 10% of the time. What's your take on, on that? Well, I describe it almost exactly the same. I describe it as a pair of Levi's. It's like, to me, that's just like a pair of Levi's. You can wear a pair of Levi's in 90 or 95% of the situations. You can just walk in, you have a good, comfortable pair of jeans, looks good, comfortable. You can work in it. You can play in it. You know what I mean? You hell, you could go to a formal event in jeans, black jeans or whatever. But, um, the main thing for me, the main evolution for me was like when I started and I was playing as a duo, I tended to favor, like I played those silver tone guitars, like things that right. had a, a, a pickup that had a much higher output Yeah, and it has a lot more low end and just like a much bigger sound. Like maybe to duo, compensate, compensate for the lack of bass player. Is that sort of what you were? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I sort of grabbed it. And then as the band got bigger and I got started playing with Christine and I got a bass player and, you know, there's just more like suddenly I wanted my guitar playing to just be like, another part of the band as opposed to be this featured thing, you know? Yeah. And the Telecaster just became, I don't know. I think I started maybe 2018. I started playing the Telecaster. I haven't really played much else since then. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, so yeah, I still have those other guitars and they're, they're all really cool and I don't have a studio or, um, a way to have them all out. Like they're all in cases and some of them are in Toronto and some of them, you know, it's, so it's, so, yeah. so it's, but I, I tend to uh, reach for that one. And, and I mean, it just works so well. It's like, it's just such a tool. Yeah. And when you um, do a show, are you just like a one guitar guy? I guess you have an acoustic and an electric, but do you have a, do you bring a couple electrics out with you or just the one? Um, 
I've done a lot of touring with just one. Oh, cool. And, um, and now I have a second one that's just like a backup one. You know, if I do a song and drop D or something like that, it's nice to have a second one, but, um, man, it makes things so much easier. And Christine's really been an inspiration for that. Right. It's like, she, she bought a guitar at Long McQuaid in like 1997. And that's been the guitar that she's (laughs) always had and always played. She always sounds great. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not some special vintage guitar. It's just, that's her guitar and it sounds awesome. And it's telly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, she's, she's a really inspiration, but it's kind of like, um, in many cases, I think the less is more thing just really appeals to me. Right. It's, it's, I don't have any patience for like pedals, not working, things like that. And so I've done lots of tours with one guitar and no pedal board, just plug right into the amp and that there's never any problems. It's shocking. And it sounds amazing. It sounds good. No shit in between. (laughs) Yeah. So you do uh, like, you're always kind of riding that line. Right. Cause it's nice to have, you know, I do have pedals and, you know, I have a tuner and I have some other reverb or whatever stuff down there, but it's, you just want it to, I just want it to be functional. You know, I don't, I never want to just switch to a different sound because suddenly we're, it's the chorus and we need to have this new sound or whatever. It's, it's more like textural and really like, is there something that's really elevating the song? And yeah, is there really any effect that elevates the song? It's like, well, a lot of that you can do with your playing, you know? Totally. Well, the one, the one effect that I hear in your music that's coming, that comes and goes through many of the records is like a fuzz kind of thing. And mm. uh, there's some crazy fuzz stuff on the new record too. Is that you playing mm-hmm. that or is that Dan Nobler? Yes. Yeah. That's um, there's, there's a lot of it. That's me. And there's a lot of it's Don, 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 Dan too, but what do you use to get your fuzz craziness? You just, tr- just crank up turn the it up. Yeah. Just crank it up. I mean, I have a, I have a Fender Champ there, which that works. It's kind of like the telly. It works in most scenarios. Yeah. Um, even I have this, uh, more recently, I got this Milkman uh, amp, which I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yeah, because that guy's a steel, he's a steel player. And he, those, he? those amps are originally designed for pedal steels. Yeah. Ah, yeah. well, that one I've actually like, I used a fair bit on some different recordings that I've done. And uh, yeah, it's the same thing. When you dime that out, it's you can get some really cool fuzz yeah. fuzzy tones out of that you know but um yeah i think it's just between the guitar and the amp there's a whole world there that you can there is. mess with right yeah and so i i i lately uh when i say lately i mean the last few years like whenever i go to that fuzz tone i generally right away just roll the tone all the way off yeah and, and especially if you're playing dry with no reverb or anything like that, it's just such, I just love that sound. It's just so cool. It's almost percussive and, and it just makes you play really rhythmically and, and, and just in interesting ways, you know? Do you ever record so, straight into the, into the console? Like it almost sounds like some of the guitar tones are like right there. Oh yeah. In the, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For sure. That's like a huge move for sure. The earth tones record is basically the whole record is just like direct into the console. Right. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) there's so many layers of guitar that, but when you like, you can't really play a chord when you DI it, as you know, like a chord is just not a pleasing sound. So again, it forces you to play single notes and maybe you could do double stops and stuff, but it, it, what it allows you to do is put a lot, you can, you can layer that up. So sometimes you can do four or five, six, seven, eight tracks of guitar 
And it, all of it can be sitting right at the edge, right at the front of the speaker without yeah. it being overwhelming. It all kind of just like what the acoustic science is there, but for whatever reason, that's harder to do when you use an amp and a mic and you're introducing all these other things into the signal path. Totally. Um, yeah. But yeah, it almost becomes like a, the way you can do it with keyboards, you can layer it up like that, you know? So I'm not sure if it's because of the DI directly, but it's, it's, um, it's cool. It's a, it's a nice effect. I like that. But lately I've been listening to this band goose, oh, which know. I've never been like, well, they're they're I guess they're kind of like a new jam band. They're carrying the torch of the, the fish and the, you know, that sort of world. But, um, they're they're kind of the opposite of everything i would do their songs are like 20 minutes long and they go to all these crazy places and they're yeah. um a million fuzz boxes like the pedal boards like this big you know crazy dexterous playing really a lot of stuff happening yeah and it's almost kind of been a gateway drug for me to get into that type of music and that type of playing and, and really understand it because for so long i just was like i, I don't get this it doesn't speak to me you know mm-hmm. but um but yeah, it's kind of cool to think that there's just, there's always more music, right? If you feel like you get to the end of something, it's like, there's just, there's a whole other genre. The there's just a style. Exactly. Yeah. You're never done. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I've kind of, I've said this a couple of times now, but I really do like, you know, these guys that I work with in Nashville, like I, they're, they're doing the thing that I want to be doing when I'm their age, right? Like when I'm 70, if the phone rings and some like, 42 year old guy wants to wants me to come play on the record it's like it's probably gonna be yes yeah because i'm just interested in music and want to be part of like the same things and make interesting things you know so um i've been fortunate to be part of a lot of interesting things up to this point and and uh if if it ended tomorrow I, i could only be grateful but but hopefully it keeps going for quite a while you know yeah man so you're putting this record out uh I would imagine you're doing a, a lot of touring. Um, what's the live, what's your live band? Is it, is it Darcy Yates and Christine Bougie? Yeah, and- Christine and Darcy um, and Felicity comes and this guy, Josh Van Tassel is playing drums and um, he's actually from here. He lives in Nova Scotia. Okay. Um, yeah. But I mean, I've never been like super determined to like recreate things note for note live, you know, like, I mean, to the point where I played as a duo for many years, right. It's like, there was no chance to recreate things, but, um, the band is really strong. I mean, I've recorded with all these people too, and they're just really fantastic musicians. Um, so, and Christine plays lap steel. And so there's ways to, she can play lap like pedal, like she can totally, yeah, she can pull that off she can totally pull it off. And so, you know, we, we started playing a few of the newer ones this summer, which was really fun. And, and, um, we'll, we'll get into it over the fall, but. So um, are you, do you, do you bring your band for the Opry or are you using the house band? I didn't even know bringing my band was an option. Yeah. You I'm just playing with them. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, geez, you're telling me a bit too late. <laughs> now we're using the, uh, Opry band and, yeah. uh, Sam's going to come and play. And Dan, Dan Nobler is going to play as well, but, um, Great. you know, it, it's, it, it feels like it's like, it's cool to just, um, I know everybody says this, but it's like, you know, it's nice to be included in the history and the tradition of that place. But I, I kind of enjoy just like going to situations like that or like mountain stage or, um, E town or things like that, where it's like, they have a thing that they do and you just plug into their thing for that couple hours and, 
you know, just try and, and then go enjoy the experience, ways. right? Yeah. And then go your separate ways, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, in the past, when I've tried to like, I don't know, flex and try and insert, try and make them do it my way, that never works as good. You know, totally. it's better to just be, um, better just be along for the ride kind of thing. And, yeah. um, I mean, no doubt that they're, they're good players and I'm sure it's going to be awesome. And in fact, some of the singers sang on this record, like the Opry singers, they're, just, they're on like three or four tracks. Yeah. Um, Tanya Hencheroff, I, I noticed her in the credits and sh- she's from Vancouver. That's, that's, is that right? Yeah. Um, but, oh, she, cool. but she's in the Opry house band and I saw she's on your record. So I assume. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wicked. Yeah. I'm looking forward to going there. It's going to be, it's going to be cool. I got, I got to, uh, I got to get my jeans ready and my helicopter yeah, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I'll let you go, but thanks so much for, um, hanging out talking today. So yeah. are you, are you playing, are you playing a show like an actual show in Nashville or is it yeah, just, we're playing for Americana Fest. We're playing at you know um, Brooklyn Bowl. Oh, Brooklyn cool. Bowl. Yeah. That's on, a great venue. Uh, I think it's on, is on Thursday. Is that right? Yeah. I think we're playing Thursday. Tuesday I'll play at some, I think it's at the Bluebird actually. It's some songwriter workshop kind of thing. And then Wednesday we'll do the Opry and Thursday I'll do the show. So it's sort of like get to do three different cool things, be in Nashville for three days and do three different things, which is so low. for me, it's a, I get my money's worth out of a trip to Nashville, you know? Yeah. So you've got your regular band for the Brooklyn Bowl show, I assume. Yeah. 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 Right. They'll fly in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I hope, I hope I can get out to see that one. So that's like a multiple yeah. artist kind of thing. That's uh, like, I think so. I think it's like a, yeah, it's like a festival type of thing. I think there's, you know, four or five acts on the bill, but um, yeah, please come if you can. It'd be great. I will. Wicked. Right All right. On. Well, thanks. Thanks for the time, man. I really appreciate it. And nice to see you again. Yeah. Likewise, man. My pleasure. And uh, yeah. Best of luck down there in Nashville. I'd like to come by. Your studio looks pretty good, man. Anytime. Yeah, if you have... A, you got it all any, dialed in there. Well, it's all right. It did works you, pretty good. You, 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 you made a record with Chris Ludica, right? Yeah, a few. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just did a record for him. I produced a record for him um, oh, cool. last year, yeah. and we did it here in Nova Scotia. Oh, wicked. I got to get... I'll get him to send it to you, man. It's, it's really weird. Is it out yet? It's... Uh, no, I think it's going to come out next year. I'm trying to find a label and, and I think he's got something lined up now, but, but in any case, uh, yeah, it's cool. He's such a fun guy. And are you doing more production stuff? Said, is that, is that a thing for you going forward? I'm trying to, I did this yeah. last Doug Paisley record, which was really fun. And, and, um, this old man Ludica record, I tend to find like middle-aged musicians who have sort of found themselves like, yeah. um, feeling like maybe their career is over. Those are, those are the guys that I gravitate towards too. <laughs> Doug, um, Doug's no, hilarious, I mean, man. I, I I grew up across the street from Doug Paisley. Is that right? Yeah, really funny guy and super talented. But yeah, you should check out his last record if you if you if you haven't heard it. It's it turned out really good. Cool. And was uh was super fun. We actually recorded it at the same studio that I did the Sad Hunk record at, and um, okay. it was like the studio that basically existed for those two albums and then it's gone. It was oh. just an incredible place. In but Toronto? In Toronto. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It's just such a cool, cool room. And they had those barefoot speakers, man. You know, those yeah. monitors that are like, oh, those are insane. I'd always like, I found myself like, you know, we are supposed to work until six and then I'd be like at five, I'd be like, that was a good day. Why don't we just call it? And then I would just listen to like Dr. Dre for an hour. <laughs> 
on the parents. And then the next day, yeah. And the next day, yeah. it'd be like, let's call it at 4 p.m. and like, let's just listen to something else, you know? Yeah. These are just incredible, those things. These atomics are kind of like that. They they have this big subwoofer on the back that fires backwards. And it's just mm-hmm. like, they're insane. They, wow. have, they have that, like, it just shakes your whole core if you turn it up loud enough. Yeah, I think I'm getting to a point where in my life where I might like to have a good stereo. I've never had one. And actually, my wife has a Volvo and it's it, it has a quite a nice stereo and it's like probably the best stereo we have. But... Mm-hmm. But I, at the cottage, I have a CD player and I just listen to so much more music out there. Right. Like I, it sounds sad to say, but like, I don't listen to a ton of music, you know, there's just podcasts. There's all these other things now to compete. And so when we go out there, um, I just put a CD on and just like, you know, just enjoy it in a way that I did when I was like a teenager or something. And, um, yeah, I, it's, it's I, I'm embarrassed, almost embarrassed to say that, but but listening to music is fun. <laughs> it is, it is. It sure and also is. CDs, like, and people just give you CDs. Nobody wants them anymore. I know. And I've kind of realized that it's like, we used to collect records because they were cheap or nobody wanted them. And now vinyl's just, it's just, it's, I'm embarrassed to charge what we have to charge for the vinyl. It's outrageous, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So now when I, when I got the CD player and I told people, they're like, Oh, like, you don't remember those big black binders of people who just throw away the jewel <laughs> totally. cases. Yeah. I, I have like a bunch of those at the cottage now. I know like, there's a lot of weird garbage in there. I didn't know Pearl Jam had so many bootlegs, but anyway, <laughs> I have a lot of nice, I got a nice blue rodeo CD and I got some other nice material out there, yeah. but it's been really fun just being like leafing through this thing and being like, Oh, cool. Like let's listen to, Bob Marley's legend for the, you yeah. know, and CDs sound pretty good too. Time. It's like, it sounds great. I think, I don't yeah. know. I think if I wanted to go with the vinyl route, then you got to drop the serious cake, you know? That's right. All right. Well, uh, thanks great man. talking to you. You too. Yeah. And, um, have a good trip down here and have a great tour and all that stuff and hope to see you. Right on. Appreciate it. Thanks Steve. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. <laughs>